Tonight's topic is alleviating anger. Um, so I'll be going into the tools that I use in various settings, classrooms, one-on-one, -on -one, and on retreats. And I'll be focusing on one specific type of anger. There are many types of anger, and I'll outline at first the types of anger that I won't really be addressing, just so that we can distinguish between them. To give a talk on alleviating all the different kinds of anger would not be feasible in one half-hour talk. So, uh, there is, of course, anger at systemic social injustice. The politicians who incite violence and bigotry, institutions that demean and violate the rights of people of color, women, members of LGBTQ communities. And I find, uh, as a lifelong lefty, who grew up with parents that were actively protesting the Vietnam War and uh, marching with Martin Luther King, that for me, the way I process my anger at social injustice is through action. Um, either I volunteer, I protest, or I support the causes that address social injustice. And then... I then move on to the Buddhist practice of equanimity, which is first take action, whatever action I can take, and then knowing that the world has always been an unfair, unjust uh, place where all kinds of uh, uh, injustices occur, if we make our happiness or peace of mind contingent on the world suddenly addressing all of the uh, inequality, it's not a good choice. In fact, we'll burn out. As a young activist in a lot of causes, such as CISPES in the 1980s, God Love We Deliver, and other groups in the 90s, what I found was that people who didn't know how to practice equanimity would burn out and not continue to take positive action. So we have to balance action with knowing what our limits are and knowing when to detach from focusing on the injustices of the world and knowing how to take care of ourselves if we want to in any way uh, be of any long-term use in those endeavors. So there's another form of anger which is a camouflage of grief. I work with a lot of people in one-on-one -on -one mentoring who arrive in one-on-one -on -one work with enormous and understandable anger at abandoning exes, partners, parents, family members. And what I find is that very often anger is a way to mask the real emotion that needs to be felt the deeper emotion of grief and sadness and loss. Uh, as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross noted in her 1969 famous book, um, Death and Dying, uh, she, noted, she noted the five stages of, of grieving and anger is, as she noted, a way that we can maintain a kind of denial 
about the suffering that we've gone through or the wounding that we've experienced. Anger can give the illusion that there's something we can do about a loss that's already occurred in the past. Uh, so that's a kind of anger that's addressed through in a very safe therapeutic environment working with another person to help feel the grief beneath the anger that's been lurking and waiting for uh, a safe place where it can be accessed. I am going to be talking about a third kind of anger, which is the anger that erupts from the interpersonal indignities that happen throughout daily life. And for your benefit, I'm going to be talking about two experiences of my own where I at first did not process anger in the useful way, the skillful way, and then the way to address anger in a skillful way. So, the first example happened to me only the other week. I was teaching on uh, Tuesday, as I normally do in the Bowery, and to get back home, I ride my bike over the Williamsburg Bridge, and there was only one person up ahead of me. He was a good 15 yards up ahead of me on the bike path heading back to Brooklyn, and uh, I saw that he was a safe distance away, and then I heard something underneath my tire. I looked down to see what it was. I had run over some metal object, and when I looked back up, the person who was riding their bike about 15 yards ahead of me had suddenly decided to uh, disembark his vehicle and to place his vehicle perpendicular, completely blocking the bike lane, and he was now about, at most, 10 feet away from me. So I screeched to a stop, and as I screeched to that stop, I inadvertently yelled, not a, not a terrible curse word, it was something that a neurotic Jew from New York would yell, who's far too polite. I yelled something like, Damn! <laughs> which was, you know, I, I really could have been far more, but I was damn, and I gave him this look of like, what are you doing? It seemed like he decided that blocking the bike path and turning to admire the, look, the view of Manhattan was the most natural thing to do, and he gave me this startled look as I then started my bike again and, and rode around him into the oncoming bike lane to get around his bike and kept on. And as I moved on, he yelled out to me, <laughs> in the mo imagine the most sarcastic voice you can, I'm sorry if I ruined your night, asshole. <laughs> And so I rode over the bridge down with my shoulders above my ears, my jaw locked, and I went into that spiral that we can go into when we feel affronted and mistreated. I'm saying we. I assume that some of you go do this. Uh, the first was the inner lawyer in my brain kicked up and started off on a speech uh, of of how horrible the world is today, everything that's wrong. And of course, the individual who did this was wearing khaki pants, a blue blazer, and had a briefcase over his shoulder. 
So immediately the inner lawyer seized on that and made him a representative of all of the, uh, excuse me if I'm hitting home here, but all of the people who have been gentrifying Williamsburg over the last 15 years and those of us who got there, uh, you know, who've, been, who've lived here all our life, who was born here and blah, 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 in my brain. And then uh, the revenge fantasies kicked up, <laughs> which is the perfect retort. Me screeching around my bike, riding back to him, and listen, you yuppie son of a bitch who wasn't even born when I was a bike messenger in 1980. <laughs> you stupid whatever. Yeah. So I had that. And then, because... Uh, I am, of course, a neurotic Buddhist teacher. Uh, I also had the other voice, which is, you shouldn't be feeling that way. <laughs> that you should be above this. You shouldn't have this, uh, this anger. You're supposed to be, you just taught a Buddhist class. What's going on with you? <laughs> you should, <laughs> clearly you're doing it all wrong, even after all this time. This should not be, so... Back and forth between the no, I shouldn't be having this feeling, or I should be able to have it instantly removed, which, of course, emotions don't respond to shoulds. They don't understand the language structures of the left hemisphere. They're from far older, deeper parts of the brain. Emotions like anger and fear are from the core fight, flight, or freeze mechanisms that are survival impulses that will never be removed from the human experience. And trying to say to anger or fear, well, you shouldn't be there, is not a emotion regulation tool that works. I've found over the course of 55 years of human existence. So, um, in fact, retelling the story in the mind the launching into speeches to replace or push down the really uncomfortable feeling of anger. And anger is a very disruptive impulse, and most of us uh, find it very difficult to be with anger. So when it occurs, rather than sit with the feeling, we go up into the head and we start the inner speech, the inner lawyer kicks in with the inner judge, who will find other people guilty all the time. But we still go through the court case of how terrible they are and how unfair the world is, etc. And of course, those resentments don't deactivate the anger. They just keep activating it. The resentments trigger the feeling. The feeling is uncomfortable, so we go back into the head, which tells more stories. And it creates a two-front battlefield where there's no alleviation. So let's put that one aside, and I'll talk about how I alleviated that situation uh, in a moment. Let's take another event that happens. Uh, a few years back, uh, I had my money in a terrible bank. Think of one of the largest banks. <laughs> fascistic organization that you could possibly imagine. And I got a call from them, and they said, well, we had a teller. And the teller was arrested after we found that the teller gave away all the PIN numbers to people's accounts 
to a known felon who has been emptying out various people's bank accounts, and you were one of the lucky uh, 50 or 60 people who had thousands of dollars removed from your account in the last day. And I said, oh! <laughs> and then they said, so we're going to send you a form that you should fill out to wait to get your money back. And I started getting angry because I thought, well, it was your teller who gave away my information and now my money's gone. Shouldn't you just, knowing how much has been removed, shouldn't you just replace it? And then they said, we would urge you to buy our $400 theft protection plan. At which point I became furious and started... I lost my temper and started shouting, are you telling me that you just lost thousands of dollars and now because of that I should buy one of your theft protection programs? <laughs> I demand to speak to a supervisor, blah, blah, blah. And of course I got through to a supervisor and of course yelling and screaming all kinds of insanities. They eventually gave in and gave me the theft protection program for free and they returned my money. <laughs> so that gave me the illusion, it might have given people the illusion that losing my temper and yelling actually worked. But I found that in no way was my anger or my, the emotional state in any way alleviated. I walked around furious for days afterwards, feeling this mistreatment and how dare they, because it had activated early feelings from childhood with my parents, where my parents would promise they'd do something and then take it away, or those early feelings in life where social institutions are unfair and they would take something away that was yours. So all these early feelings were activated, and the venting, didn't in any way alleviate the anger that arose. And getting my way didn't alleviate any of the anger. I was still infuriated. I actually read an article by a uh, University of Arkansas professor, Jeffrey Lohr, L-O-H-R, called The Pseudo-Psychology of Venting in the Treatment of Anger. And what he finds after one study after another after another, that all forms of therapy that involve venting, you might have heard of primal scream therapy and other forms where they have people yell and shout and kick, don't work. In fact, he came to the conclusion that expressing anger does not reduce aggressive tendencies. In fact, it only aggravates them because... What we're doing when we're venting is we're trying to get an emotional feeling of being attacked or mistreated that's meant to be felt in the body, and we're trying to externalize it, to push it out onto someone, and emotions don't work that way. Emotions actually are only alleviated in a couple of ways. One, emotions especially core emotions such as anger, fear, sadness, and grief, are only alleviated, one, by being felt. They're impulses from the unconscious telling us that an event that either affects our survival or reminds us of an earlier threat that we survived has occurred. 
or an interpersonal disappointment. And emotions are impulses that let us know that something that is disturbing to the unconscious survival brain has occurred, and they're letting it's an emotion lets us know, hey, pay attention. And what an emotion seeks is awareness. It doesn't seek aggressive action or venting or hiding or running away. What it seeks, most of all, is to be felt. And then the second thing an emotion needs to be regulated is to be expressed to other people who are tolerant and who care about us so that they will feel, um, we will feel connected. Human beings are social beings and we feel less vulnerable and we feel uh, emotionally permitted to soothe ourselves when we connect with other people because that's what gave us our great survival advantage. That's what allows us to overcome adversity is when we express our emotions and somebody else goes, I get it. You're feeling really hurt, wounded, lonely, sad, depressed. I get it. I'm here. I hear that. And when we know that there are other people available who have experienced the same, then what they do is after mirroring our emotions, they also give us a signal that it's going to be okay. They might give us a knowing touch or a smile or they might give us some visual nonverbal indication that we're not alone. And that emotional experience of expressing, getting mirrored and have somebody connect with us talks to the unconscious mind and it tells the emotional unconscious mind we're okay, we're safe again, we're connected with other people. That is the process at core of emotion regulation. So we need to feel and we need to express. When we try to get rid of emotions what, by repressing them, by shooting them away, by distracting ourselves with Netflix or Facebook, by living in resentments rather than feeling the feelings, what happens is the tension of the unacknowledged, unfelt emotion builds up and then it explodes with dysregulation. You'll, you might have met some couples that can't work through conflict and they, rather than discuss conflict, they continually bury the disagreements or the disappointments. They don't talk about how they're upset with each other and then they get into a huge fight over who forgot to to uh, buy the, you know, soy milk or whatever. <laughs> when we repress, when we don't acknowledge, when we don't share about our emotions and when we don't feel our emotions, they will erupt. The other alternative is that if we rely on freezing the body through distraction, to get rid of our anger, what will happen is we will seek out addictive substances or behaviors to keep the emotions frozen, to keep ourselves unaware of the emotional body where the feelings of anger reside. So we'll seek out food, we'll seek out alcohol, we'll seek out other norm numbing behaviors, shopping, 
uh, other addictive strategies so that we don't feel the emotional anger. Again, ang core emotions are meant to be felt and expressed in a safe, tolerant environment. Now, in early Buddhism, there's two approaches to regulating anger. The first is when anger is destructive and will lead to some form of hatred where we'll start uh, becoming extremely verbally or physically violent towards a group or an individual. The Buddha taught to do anything possible to replace anger with skillful alternatives such as he talks about conquering anger with non-anger, conquering anger with kindness, with compassion. And this is fine if you're in a state where you might explosively vent rage upon someone. There's nothing wrong with at first using some metaphrase to uh, calm the mind, like, uh, may I feel safe? May I feel happy? Visualizing someone that, with whom you feel safe. Visualizing a place you feel safe. Or using the breath. If you extend the length of the out-breath uh, twice as long as the in-breath, that will essentially uh, begin to disrupt the release of cortisol and the fight mechanism of the amygdala and the midbrain. But if we rely on these techniques too long, they can turn into what's called a spiritual bypass, where we're using our spiritual practice to suppress our anger rather than to feel it and express it. So I only recommend using breath or metta or forgiveness practices if we're about to cause some kind of harm to a relationship. We're about to break up uh, or scream at someone, or uh, destroy something that we love. For the long-term processing of emotion, it's very important to learn from another core teaching of the Buddha, which was Saka's anger-eating demon. And in this wonderful story, the Buddha talks about a king who has left his throne and has gone on... I guess vacation, I don't know. And while he's away, an anger-eating demon, which is a small little demon, creeps in and sits on Sokka's throne and starts barking in a little voice because it's a very small demon. And the guards see the little demon and get uh, they start poking at it and they resist it and they say, go away, this is not for you. And as they, they greet the anger-eating demon with more and more frustration or mm -hmm. resentment, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes a ferocious demon, breathing fire and terrifying, and all the guards leave. And they wait until Sokka comes back, and Sokka, who's a very smart guy, goes in and he greets the anger-eating demon with kindness and says... <laughs> Is there anything I can bring to you? Can I make you more comfortable? Can I offer you something to eat? Do you want to put your claws up? I don't know. Uh, with each nicety, the demon becomes smaller and smaller until it eventually becomes so small it can be removed from, from Sokka's chair. 
Now, this is, of course, a metaphor for the way we relate to our anger, our fear, our sadness, which is at first we try to get rid of it, we try to should it away, we try to, or we might greet it with our own form of frustration or anger. And the real practice is to do what Saka did, which is to turn towards it, to make it comfortable, to create a safe place in the body where it can be felt. So we did what the practice that I teach on retreats and then, you know, all different settings is very, the first one is to do what we did in the meditation, which is to bring up purposely when we sit a single image which reminds us of a frustrating event that has occurred, a really aggravating event, to hold that image and to ask ourselves leading questions. How does it feel to be mistreated? How does it feel to have someone not take our feelings into consideration? How does it feel when the, the roommate's boyfriend or girlfriend is suddenly there all the time and won't <laughs> go away? How does that feel? And just allow ourselves to actually have the full emotional impulse arise and give it space, relax the arms and legs, and feel the emotion where it expresses itself, in my experience, always in the front of the body, in the stomach, the chest, throat, or face. And just be with that feeling until it uh, begins to dissipate, and then send it nurturing uh, messages. It's not really the words that matter, it's the tone of voice. I care about you, you're allowed to be angry. That creates a safe place. The second process then is after we've felt the impulse to find someone who's tolerant, not someone who's judgmental, critical, holier than thou, somebody who thinks that they've got their spiritual shit all worked out, and to tell them about the anger, and to have that person simply listen, and if they try to tell you what to do, just say, no, I just want someone to listen, and then hopefully they'll signal you that it's okay to be angry, and that it's going to be okay. So basically they're regulating through their nonverbal expressions the feelings. I do think when we connect with people, rather than what we often do, the mistake that people often fall into when they're trying to uh, alleviate anger interpersonally, is they go into retelling and then... She said this. Can you believe that she said this? How dare she? And then I said this. And, then, and I was right to say that, wasn't I? And then she said... <laughs> but then I said... And then she said... Can you believe she said... And what happens is by focusing on the events rather than expressing the feelings, there's very little soothing or alleviation that occurs. It's most important to say something like, I had this teller that called me up. They lost thousands of dollars from my account. And I uh, yelled at them, and I don't feel very good about it. And I just feel anger. Uh, and have someone go, yeah, I feel the same. And that's okay. It's okay to feel anger. And once the anger is done, like, like a friend of mine said, you might reflect that you got this stupid theft protection package for free and you got all your money back anyway. Mm -hmm. So you're okay. 
So that's 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 the process. Finally, um, if you're in a relationship or an experience where harm is continually happening, where somebody is continually causing abuse, where you're continually being wounded, continually seeking emotion regulation without changing the guidelines and boundaries that are involved in the relationship simply won't work. It'll simply just go into this constant spiral of trying to alleviate ever-building feelings of disappointment. So it is important not to use any of these practices as a way to avoid taking skillful actions to change the, uh, the, the rules by which we engage with certain people. I grew up with a drunk, violent dad who then in the 70s became a Buddhist, and we went through years of family therapy. And in that work, though, I learned that no matter how much he tried to become civil and caring, he was not capable in any way of uh, ever letting me discuss certain topics without becoming invasive and uh, intrusive and uh, judgmental. So I had to establish very clear boundaries, not with him, but with myself. Boundaries are for ourself, ourselves. And the boundary was essentially, I'm not going to talk with my father about certain life choices, where I work, what I'm doing with my life, things like that. I set boundaries so that our relationship could be safe so that I wouldn't constantly be rewounded. I also set guidelines which were essentially, I'm only going to connect with my father for two hours at a time. Right afterwards, I would always hang out with a friend or go to a Buddhist meeting or a 12-step meeting, and I would express the frustrations. I realized that to, to essentially alleviate all the anger that was happening in that relationship, it was not just a matter of processing the anger, but it was also necessary to protect myself and only engage as much as it was um, feasibly possible in a smart way. So I hope that you don't use any of these tools to keep yourself in abusive or uh, relationships that are consistently um, uh, unjust. I thank you for listening.